Praise God, dear sisters and dear brothers. Um, it's good to be here in the South Hall uh, where the condition, the AC condition, is working um, effectively. And just to see your guys', um, to see you guys again, it's good to be back. Um, I'd like to share a word, and this is a word, um, something that I've been asked uh, to share. Uh, it's something that the brothers feel is um, needed with the youth. And I want to, to base most of my sermon off of Matthew chapter 16. Uh, I said a sermon off of Matthew chapter 16, and I want to go off that last sermon just a little bit and then go into this sermon. And today I want to talk about picking up our cross, pick up your cross. And so Matthew chapter 16, if you remember, thank you so much, thank you Victor, uh, verse 26 asks two questions. If we could get Matthew chapter 16 verse 26. It says two questions. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And maybe like five months ago, I preached this here, and we said nothing. There is no profit for a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. And the second question was, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And that's a question to us. What will a man or a woman give in exchange for his or her soul once it has been given over to the enemy? And the answer is nothing that we can give. But there is something that has already been given for our souls, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so through the sacrifice of Christ, by his blood, we are able to have life, and our souls are able to live. But I would like us to look at just above these two uh, questions uh, in a place which mentions the word church for the first time. And when we're going to be talking about picking up our cross and following Christ, we're going to be talking about the church, in the context of the church. In Matthew 16, for the first time, we hear the word church used. What we read church or congregation, if you transliterate that word. And it's written in verse 17. It says... And Jesus said to Simon, to him, Blessed are you, Simon Berjana, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overpower it. And so for the first time in the Gospels, in the New Testament, we find this word, congregation or church. After this word, Jesus, uh, uh, things kind of switch up for Peter, because Peter was talking to Jesus, and Peter answered a question correctly. Jesus asks uh, everyone a question. There's a class, there's 12 disciples, maybe more, and Jesus gets... Uh, the correct answer from Peter. 
And Jesus right away says, man, uh, the spirit of Peter, the spirit of God revealed that to you. You're not that smart. And he says, you're blessed. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to build this thing called a church. Probably most of the disciples don't know. I don't know if any understood, fully understood what this meant, that God was going to build a church. God was going to build this beautiful divine structure here on earth. But then things switch for Peter from being the rock on which Jesus builds the church. Let's read verse 21. Um, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And now follow these ideas. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples. His disciples. This is what I believe God is trying to get across to the people in the church today. Listen very closely. It says, he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And here's what Peter does. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Did anyone follow with what I was just reading? Jesus goes from saying that we're going to build this church, or I'm going to build a church. You're going to be part of it, Peter. You're going to be the foundation. He says, he starts revealing things. And I guess he starts speaking, not in parables, but very straightforward, like, Disciples, I am going to die. This is going to be a physiological death. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to Jerusalem. And all of these things will take place in Jerusalem. Are you guys with me? And his disciples, perhaps for the first time, are really getting this. Because Jesus, many times before, he said these things. He said that uh, his disciples would argue about who's going to sit on the right hand, the left hand. Jesus is like, you guys aren't understanding what I'm here for. My, my mission's a little bit different. But this time, it seems like Jesus starts speaking very clearly. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. That's what it says. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to be killed. I am going to suffer and be killed. And Peter, hearing that, along with all the other disciples, takes Jesus to the side and says, listen, Jesus, if we're talking about, uh, you know, building a church, whatever this structure organization is supposed to look like this death thing it doesn't really sound good basically he starts to talk Jesus out of it Jesus says I rebuke get behind me Satan or I rebuke you Satan because because you're not thinking of the things of God but the things of man and this is what I want us to follow with this thought so we're talking about suffering, okay? Just follow with me. We're talking about death. We're talking about going to Jerusalem and Jesus being betrayed. We're talking about Jesus starting throughout this whole process. Suffering, betrayal, and death. Jesus starting the church. The church of Jesus Christ was, you could say, it was started here when Jesus placed Peter at the foundation. But I would go a little bit further and say that the church of Christ was started once Jesus was ascended into heaven. Or maybe the church of Christ was started when Jesus was speaking with the disciples after his death. But his death, listen closely, his death on the cross, his suffering, his betrayal, was all, all of these things were leading up to the starting 
of this glorious, beautiful church of Jesus Christ. Are you guys with me? All right? So Jesus isn't suffering. He's not dying. He's not being betrayed for no reason. And he's not doing it just as a good deed or as a one-time good deed. He's not even doing it just to save his disciples. Jesus is doing it. It says, there's a place in the Bible that says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life up for her. Jesus gave his life up for the church. Jesus, with his death, initiated the beginning of this glorious structure that you are part of called the church. And you right now are part of the most beautiful sitting in a building, a single building. And there's thousands, maybe millions of buildings that pertain to this church. But the church isn't made up of buildings. The church is made up of you and of me. The church is a congregation, a gathering of people. And so follow with me. Jesus is saying, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And I'm going to do this for a very specific reason. For the church. For you guys. For your salvation. So that you might have life. Now, this is where we start to apply this to our lives. Let's read verse 24. Verse 24 says the following. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must, all right? Guys, this, this is something that we must understand, all right? We must understand that Jesus here is using the word must, all right? If, if we get that, it will help us a lot. This isn't something that Jesus is asking his disciples to do. Not something that Jesus is hoping his disciples will do or something that is recommended. Like you could go another route, but here's the recommended route. This is the way that will get you to the place that you're trying to go the fastest. No, no, no. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Now, we're talking about taking up our cross and following Jesus. But before we can take up our cross, there's something that Jesus says in verse 24 that we have to do, almost like a prerequisite. It says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Then you must take up your cross. And once you have these two things figured out, once you have denied yourself, whatever that means, and we'll talk about that, once you have picked up your cross, then you will be able to follow me. I want to read a place from Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 15, 31. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. This is Apostle Paul speaking. I die daily. I mean, if we're talking about self-denial, if we're talking about giving something, sacrificing something, dying is pretty up there. And Paul says, daily I go through this process of dying. 
There's another place. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. Galatians 5, 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. End of chapter. Here's, here's what I wanted to talk about today. That was a little intro, and this is what we, we want to talk in the next maybe 10 minutes. When we're talking about picking up our cross, what are we talking about? When you, when, when you say in a Bible study or when you're talking with your friends, if, if that's a really good conversation to have with your friends. I, I hope all of you guys just randomly talk about dying to yourself and carrying your cross. What does that mean? And, and a better question would probably be, how does that look like? How do I know that a person, how do you know if you or I know that I have denied myself and am carrying or in the process of carrying my cross, following Christ? How does that look like? Can you tell these individuals apart from the individuals that are not carrying their cross and have not denied themselves? Is there any difference between a man or a woman that has denied herself and is carrying her cross a man who is, has denied himself and is carrying his cross, and a man and a woman who hasn't. And what is that difference? That's, that's a question for us. That's a question that I was asking myself. When we're talking about carrying our cross, I would propose to you that we're not talking about salvation. I would propose to you that we're not talking about you gaining your salvation via you carrying your cross. Because Paul talks, and we don't have time to go through these verses, but Paul says that he has been co-crucified in Christ. What does that mean? That Paul's sins, Paul's curses, have been crucified with Christ on the cross. That means that your sins and your curses have been co-crucified, have been crucified in Christ on the cross. He took our sins and our suffering. Isaiah talks about this. This is Old Testament stuff. And New Testament repeats this a lot of times. We don't earn our salvation. We don't do enough good works to gain our salvation. I don't care how big of a cross you're carrying. That is not something that is going to save you. You carry your cross. Listen. You carry your cross. And understand me correctly here. This is, this is like a, a fine line that we have to understand. You carry your cross as a disciple of Christ, following him, and your cross pertains to your salvation. It has a big part to do with your salvation. But I wouldn't say that a cross is something that you pick up and say, let's do this thing. God, what do I need to do in the next 50 years to gain my salvation? No, no, to gain your salvation, you, we need to ask Jesus for forgiveness. We need to believe in him as our personal Lord and Savior. But here it's talking about picking up your cross and following him for a continual amount of time. What is that? How does that look like? And I would say the first thing, the first thing is that we would have to look back into Matthew, the source of what I'm talking about. And go over the verse again, verse 24. 
Matthew 16, 24. Here's what it says. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, do you know this statement? Who was it said to? Does it say in the verse? It does say in the verse, right? It says, Jesus said to his disciples. He says, if you want to follow me, if anyone, it says, wants to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And I would, I would propose to us this, that denying ourselves is a big part of carrying our cross. But without denying ourselves, we won't be able to carry our cross. And denying ourselves means purifying ourselves, means sanctifying ourselves, means living a life that is holy, a person who is ready to be used in season and out of season. That is a person who is constantly, like Paul says, I deny myself daily. What does that mean? He denies not himself, but the lusts that are in him. The sins that he's being tempted with. Everything that is around him that is against the will of God, he denies that. He denies himself when he feels like doing that. And he dies daily. And in Paul's case, it, that form of denial was a, lot, uh, a little more uh, raw than what we think of when we, th when we think of denial. But the second part is carrying the cross. And once a person is purified, once a person is in the process of purification, not regeneration, but purification, sanctification, going into glorification, this person is constantly checking himself and looking in his life. Is there anything else that, Lord, you want me to change, you want me to do? This person can pick up the cross. And... The first thing that I'll say about the cross is that the world cannot pick up the cross and follow Jesus. Unbelievers can't pick up the cross and follow Jesus. Would you agree with me? If someone doesn't agree with me, please tell me. So listen, if we agree that the world or the people in the world, unbelievers, cannot carry the cross, what, is that, what does that mean? That means some of the things that we're thinking or we're calling the cross of Christ in our life, they're not really the cross of Christ in our life. When you're, when you're and I don't know if people do this jokingly or not jokingly, you say, oh, that's my cross, pointing at a sibling. And maybe in some cases pointing at a wife. Or a husband. And I hear this about the wife and the husband from other people. And they're, they're kind of joking about this. But maybe, maybe they're not. I'm not sure. Because listen. People in the world have husbands and have wives. And the people in the world cannot carry the cross of Christ. People in the world have siblings, children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and the people in the world cannot carry the cross of Christ. It is impossible. It is illogical to say that they carry the cross of Christ. Having that said, these people that I just mentioned can be your cross. But 
what I want to leave with you is that the cross of Christ has a direct correlation with the church of Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ is a church that has been built upon the sacrifice of one man, Jesus Christ, by his sufferings, by his death, there has been established the church of Jesus Christ. And now people who pick up their cross and follow Christ are the, are the people who you see establishing and working and tilling and loving the church of Jesus Christ. I want to propose to you that going to choir practice, listen carefully, going to youth choir practice is a cross. To a degree, is a cross. Because there's sacrifice. Because you have to give something up. Because you're serving. Coming to youth practice during the summer, youth choir practice during the summer, is a cross. Do you know why I'm saying it's a cross? Because you're sacrificing something. And we're not even talking about suffering and death and blood and the things that Jesus had to go through. We're talking about little things. But we're talking about the church of Jesus Christ. People of God who have sanctified themselves, who have purified themselves, who have one desire and one hope to please God. These are people who will inevitably pick up the cross and start following Christ. These are people who are led to follow Christ. And the only way to follow after Christ is with a cross. And so when we're doing little things, we're talking about little things that God sees and man might not always see here in church. And I'm not only talking about the services. These are men and women who have picked up their cross and are following Christ. I was at a service a long time ago, long time ago, can't tell you how many years ago, at um, Statewide Youth. And there was some kind of forum. Bishops were sitting with pastors up, up, uh, up on the stairs. I think that, that was the format. I might be wrong. And there was questions being uh, taken from the youth sitting there. And, and some of these questions were like very edgy, and, and then one question, when I, when I heard it, I was like, are, are, like, are, you, are we serious? Like, are we, are we really going to go that route? Uh, one of the questions was like, well, the pastors and the bishops um, talk, about, talk about drinking and how we shouldn't be drinking alcohol. But then in the same place where it says about drinking, it talks about gluttony. How come so many or not so many or I don't know if a name was mentioned or not. I don't think a name was mentioned. But basically, everyone understood who this thing was, this question was talking about. And now many people there didn't know. And at that time, I didn't know. But then I started hearing about this bishop, about who this question was. He was a little bit bigger about uh, the fasts that he would take and about how much he served and how he served. And when you would hear the number of days that he would fast, anyone in the medical field, anyone with minimal amount of medical knowledge would understand that amount of fasting multiplied a couple of times 
weeks of fasting at a time, you know what that will do to your metabolism? Do we know what that will do to your body? Especially if you don't get out of it correctly, out of the fast correctly. And I'm like, later, later than thinking, I'm like, that bishop could have been fasting for the parents of this youth that wrote that zapiska or that question. And, and sometimes man might not even understand another man carrying the cross. Sometimes the cross that men carry or women carry seems so small and insignificant. I think that's a big problem, that we think that it's so small and insignificant. And the only thing that requires, is required from us is faithfulness. And we sacrifice maybe money, but more often time, which is more valuable than money. And, and I see people coming up. I don't know who set up these speakers, but I remember David, David Tekmenji. I come before for the prayer, and he's already here setting these things up. And so you come one month, he's doing that second month, third month, second year. Same guy, doing the same thing. And then we're, we're having, I gather, the same guy taking them down and rolling these things up. Do you know what that is? That's a man who is caring or starting to figure out this whole thing about the cross of Christ. Someone who is willing to sacrifice. Because listen, the cross of Christ is about that. That is what the cross of Christ is about. Sacrifice. You guys with me? Whether it's your money or your time or your energy or your intellect, but it's sacrifice. It costs something from our side. And I'm sorry, but we are not living in a persecuted land. We might say, oh, we're being persecuted, we're close. I'm sorry. No, compare us to China. Compare us to these Muslim countries. We are not suffering in that sense, in beatings and, and killings. That's not our suffering, but, and that's not our sacrifice, but our sacrifice in the church of Jesus Christ can resemble these things. Victor in the back. And the men who were doing it while Victor wasn't there on the missionary trip. That's a cross. Brothers preparing for sermons and, and missing stuff. And it might seem insignificant, but once you start missing like weddings and I don't know, what I hear from pastors, ask some of our pastors the stuff they missed. Giving their wife giving birth to one child, second child, third child, because this bishop in our state was out. He was always out. He was preaching. Churches had problems. That's a cross. A brother praying one hour, two hours, three hours, not playing soccer, not playing video games, not doing something else, but seeking the favor of God, seeking the face of the Lord and doing it one day, second day, until God gives him a word, sacrificing, sacrificing, sacrificing. That's a cross. Moms, I'm telling you guys, moms who I see that invest in their children, and I'm sorry, you get Charles Wesley and John Wesley, two of these great revivalists who literally, in, in historical church history, this isn't me, started a new era in the church of Christ. Come from the same mom? What does that mean? We have to look into her history. And if you read her biography, you'll say, okay, I understand. Because this woman was sacrificing, as is the woman 
many women who are our mothers, carrying their cross, sacrificing, suffering, sleepless nights in prayer, in fasting, asking God for favor. That is a cross, and that is a huge cross, and that is something that God sees. Listen, man might not see this stuff, and a lot of times man doesn't see this stuff. And a lot of times it becomes almost uh, irrelevant to serve in the church and not to serve. We like serving. We, we're all about serving. That's um, like we're fine with serving. But giving something up to serve, that's where problems start. But that is the cross. The giving something up part. The sacrificing. The zhertvovac. The giving something that really means something to you. Your time, especially, young people, I'm telling you guys, our time especially, I know, like when you're talking Friday evening, when you just get, you know, the cool, the, uh, it's getting cooler, in the day it was 90 degrees, now it's 70, everyone's going out to the beach, and that's awesome, that's awesome, but men and women carrying their crosses, make, make decisions right there. And they continue following Christ. I would want to encourage us. I wouldn't, I'm not, listen, I didn't get paid by any ministry to like, yeah, youth choir paid me this much and this ministry paid me this much to get you guys in. But I'm telling you guys, I believe there are people in the church. Listen, please, listen very closely. People in the church that are saved but have not yet picked up their cross. And that's scary. That's really scary. There are so many ministries that we can be part of. Not only that we can be part of, but that in our case as youth, we need to be part of. Youth choir, we need to be part of. I'm sorry. We need to be part of. That's our choir. Who else is going to be singing in that choir but us? And yes, that will take sacrifice. Sunday evening, there's going to be sacrifice. But there's a reward. There's always a reward from God. Man might not always reward you. Man might not always pat us on the back. But God, God sees. May God bless us all. Now, I'm not talking about just youth choir and stuff. There's so many ministries. And I would say, personally, I would say prayer ministry. Prayer ministry, that, like... (laughs) I feel like I could get 30 people to go to choir before I could get like three people to go to prayer. For some reason, prayer ministers, one of those things, in youth, not like older people who are seeking God, but young people, that is, a, that is a ministry. Interceding, that is a ministry. Raising up children in the way of the Lord, that is a ministry. Preaching, ministry. Audio apparatura, ministry. Sometimes sickness is a ministry, not a ministry, but a a sacrifice, a a cross of Christ, something that is in our body for the glory of God, as it was in the case of Paul. May God bless us. May God strengthen us, and let's stand and pray that God gives us the wisdom and that Holy Spirit finishes the working that uh, he's already doing in us. I would like to share a few things tonight with you from the book of 2 Kings. If you have your Bible, please open up to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 
16 verses 1 through 4. Again, that's 2 Kings chapter 16 verses 1 through 4. I'll be honest with you, throughout this youth service, I've been hearing a good amount about time. I've been hearing a lot about family life and a time for you right now in your youth while you're not married, while you're single, to do the things that you've been called to do and you're free to do whatever you desire. And you know, there's, there's truth in that. There's truth in that. So while we are here, praise God, we worship, we serve God, we seek God. And then, of course, you continue that when you're married and even more. But let's read. I want to read. I want to read from 1 Kings 16, verses 1 through 4. 2 Kings, I apologize. 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. It says these words. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burnt his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on every high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Keep that in mind. This is King Ahaz. King Ahaz was a wicked king, and as we read here, he even sacrificed his son. He worshipped under every high tree and every hill, and he gave sacrifices and offerings to other gods. Yet, who was the father? Who did he, who did King Ahaz father? That is my question. Do you know who came after King Ahaz? A wicked king. Ahaz was wicked, yet he had a son named Hezekiah. Let's go on to chapter 16, verses 19 through 20. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Now before I continue, I would like to thank my dad. I give him a lot of credit for this as we were driving up last week from California. We went together on the quick day trip. We had our own Bible study together. So he put, he put some of the pieces of this together and I put some of the other pieces together. Bless you. And we kind of had this Bible study together which I want to share with you. So please keep in mind Hezekiah and the age where he began to reign and when he died. And let's look into chapter 18 of 2 Kings, verses 1 through 8. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. I'll stop there. Did anyone notice anything here with the ages? King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, the time Ahaz began to reign, the time he died, and the time Hezekiah began to reign. If you notice anything, if you see the ages here and the times, 
you can do some simple math. Well, King Ahaz died at the age of 36. And King Hezekiah, his son, became king of Judah at the age of 25. So what does that make out to be? Uh, how old was King Ahaz when he begot King Hezekiah? How old? He was 11 years old. Let me ask you another question. Does the Bible have mistakes? No, absolutely not. It doesn't. And I believe that this is in here for a reason. Now, as my dad and I were reading about this, and he said, I don't know, Andy. How can my mind can't fathom it? I don't get it. How can an 11-year-old boy have a son at that age? So I decided to look into some history, and I Googled the question, what is the world record for youngest father recorded? I'm curious. And guess what was the youngest age I found? A close? No, not seven. No, no, that's a little bit more. Nine years old. Nine years old. Nine years old was the youngest recorded father. And then after that, there's a few 10-year-olds. There's more 11-year-olds. And there's many 12-year-olds. And, of course, it goes up from there, right? So, no, the Bible doesn't have mistakes. Now, the second thing is this. How could Ahaz, way back then, have that? We understand that he grew up in the wicked time, and he served, like we said, the gods of the time. Baal was one of them. Now, if we actually look into that history... I'm happy that we can talk about this at youth. Okay? It's good. If we look into the history of it, when the people worshipped Baal, that God that they worshipped was very interconnected with fertility. Okay? So whatever you wanted more of, you would go to this God, and either you would sacrifice your children if you wanted more children, or you would sacrifice your goods, or at that time you would go, and if the more people have this whole entire uh, group activity with the shrine prostitutes, then it's somehow interconnected in the earth, and the earth will produce more goods and more children, and so on and so forth. Now this exposure was at a very young age. It's not so different in our time, to be honest with you. It's not so different. And we think, how sickening is that? And it's very easy to think, and, well, Ahaz, at 11 years old, had a son that must have meant his father dragged him into all that stuff at a very young age. And the high priests of those gods would say, do this, do this. You want more children. You want more offspring, so on and so forth. However, there's something that came out of Ahaz. And he died at a young age. He was wicked. At 36, he died very young. Hezekiah became king. Who was Hezekiah? Do you know? He was a righteous king. How does righteousness come out of that? 
And he was not only righteous, but he was a very good king. And it says in Scripture that he held fast to the law of God. And he held fast to God. And he trusted in him. And he put his faith in him. And he served him wholeheartedly. And as he served him, God allowed Hezekiah to prosper. And enemies began to fall on his sides. And he began to grow in might and strength. And honor and power, as Scripture says. Yet, as he served God, remember the time when the Assyrians came to attack him. And he went to the temple and he took the letter and he laid it before the Lord. And he said, Lord, you see how your enemies insult you? Do you see what the things that they say about us against you? Lord, have mercy. And he wept before the Lord. And he brought this letter. And Isaiah, the prophet at the time, comes to him. And he says, the Lord heard your prayer. And he will answer you. And so what happened? 185,000 Assyrian troops outside of Jerusalem were struck by one angel. The angel struck them. The Assyrians left and so on. And so Hezekiah, this righteous king, some time goes by. He gets very ill. And as he's laying on his bed, he turns onto his side. And says, Scripture says he wept bitterly. And as he's weeping, he's saying, Lord, remember the righteous acts that I have done before you all my life. I didn't stray to the left nor to the right, but I followed you wholeheartedly. Now we take a look at his father Ahaz, and we take a look at Hezekiah. What a difference. Now the Lord hears the prayer of Hezekiah, and Isaiah comes to him and says, The Lord heard you, you'll be healed. And here's a sign. Fifteen years will be added to your life. And then he says this, and you'll see a shadow. And when you see that shadow, that's a sign from God confirming the promise that you have life added to you. And so his life is restored, he is living, he has 15 years of life left, and who comes along knocking on his doors? Who comes along to pay him a visit? Does anyone know? The Babylonians. It's the envoys from Babylon. They come and they say, Hezekiah, we're here to see you and we're here to pay homage to you and so on and so forth. And so it says that Hezekiah showed them everything in his kingdom, his accomplishments, his achievements, his might and strength, and so on. And so they went on their way back home. And as Isaiah comes along and says, well, who was that that came? And what does he say? He says, well, it was the Babylonians. I showed them everything. There's nothing that I did not show them. They saw everything and know everything. And Isaiah said these strong words, and it's written in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 16. It says this, Isaiah, 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 16. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons 
who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Hezekiah receives 15 extra years in life. He shows the Babylonians everything during these 15 years. Isaiah tells them and prophesizes, this is what the Lord says. They will come and take everything away. And what does he think? As long as it's not in my time, I'm okay. As long as it's in my children's time, not mine, I'm okay. You see, in Hezekiah's life, in those 15 years, pride began to swell up. His achievements and possibly even the thought, I'm good and because of my righteousness, God has healed me. And in those 15 years, he bores a son. And his name is, what is it? Say it out loud. Manasseh. Who was Manasseh? Who was Manasseh? He was the longest serving king in the history of Judah and Israel. 55 years. He was a king. And he was born during the time of those 15 years where Hezekiah, if he was not healed, would not have been there. Manasseh was a wicked king. He was terribly wicked. And he began to lead all of Judah astray. And he began to introduce all the gods and all the poles and all the sacrifices again into Judah. Now, here's my question to you. This is our food for thought. Why? How is it that such a godly and righteous king has a son who becomes so wicked, unrighteous, ungodly? Does anyone have any thoughts on that? Now, you know what's interesting is when you read through Scripture... You begin to think all sorts of questions. I have a lot of questions when I read it. But the more you look into it, the more you pray, the more you have some answers. And sometimes it's our own thoughts as well. But, you know, we keep praying and we keep looking in and we keep studying and sharing it with those who are wiser, right? And here's my thoughts on this. Did Manasseh see his father Hezekiah thank God? Did Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, see King Hezekiah praise God, thank God, give God the glory and the thanksgiving, or no? During those 15 years, as a child. And I'll tell you how smart children are. Jehu, my, one of my boys, is two years old now. And I was at home last Friday morning. Yes, it was Friday. And we're having breakfast. And he's around the table. And he comes up to me. And he starts trying to pull me. And he's trying to explain to me in his baby talk, follow me. I won't mimic it. So I get up and I follow him. And he's running to... Katie's in my room, 
and he starts pointing at my church shirts, right? And he's pointing at them. And I say, no, Jehu. <laughs> Excuse me. I say, no, Jehu. I'm not going to put that on right now. And he keeps telling me and showing me, clothes, your church shirts. And so I say, no, Jehu. I'm not going to put that on right now. So I go back to the kitchen. I sit back at the table. And he comes running with my church pants. And he's bringing me my slacks. And he's saying, nah, Papa. Nah, Papa. And it hit me. I have breakfast only once a week with my family. The other mornings, I have to get up and go work in the morning. And, and he's thinking this. Because dad's home in the morning, that means it's Sunday. That means it's time to go to church. That means he needs to put his church clothes on. And it was very easy to spot and see his thinking process. And I had to explain, no, dad's just home for breakfast today because I'll be gone for the next two days. But he didn't understand. You see, that's how smart little children are. And that if at age two, they're able to catch on to all of that. Do you think that at a young age, they can catch on if their parents are thankful and grateful or not? Yes, they sure can. And vice versa, parents can catch on whether we're thankful and grateful or not. You see, here's an important lesson for us. Even though Manasseh, I believe it was by God's grace God allowed him to serve for 55 years because it says in 2 Chronicles 33 that he repented of his sins. He turned to God. He humbled himself and he served the Lord the rest of his life towards the end of his life. But you know what's sad? That for 50 plus years, he had nothing to do with God. Only at the very end. Here, Lord, I'll give you the rest of my life. And it is by God's grace that he even had that. Not like Ahaz, who had none of that. In our life, in our young life, as we're children, then youth, and, you know, we grow older into adulthood, all of us, Lord willing, and parents. You see, in that whole process... We need to be very thankful. And we need to show thanksgiving to God. Because here's this. If all of a sudden we think we're something and pride swells up in our hearts and in our lives, what happens when we're prideful? Hezekiah became prideful at the end of his life. It's true. What happens? We stop giving thanksgiving. We stop giving God glory and credit for what's due to him because we are supposed to thank him now let's put this into our practical life right we're young i'm still young and you know i'll be honest with you i appreciate my dad right now more than ever before and there have been times where i come up to him and i say dad thank you thank you for being a great dad mom thank you for being a great mom thank you there's something about us verbally professing, confessing. You know, Scripture says if you confess with your lips and your mouth that Christ is Lord, thou shalt be saved. 
There's something about confessing and professing. Now, if you come to your parents, it's very hard but easy all at the same time. I don't know how hard or easy it is for you. But if you come up to your parent and you say, thank you. And they look at you and they say, what? And you say, thank you for being a great parent. They say, well, thank you for being a good child. I hope that's what the response is. Amen. Here at our youth, that's the response from the parents. And so work your relationship with them. So that when your parents one day, Lord willing, I pray that all of you have children that come up and try to give you church clothes. Because to me, that was a compliment. I thought I was doing a good job. But here's the more important part of it all. Give God thanksgiving. Give God thanksgiving for everything. And if you give God the thanksgiving for everything in your life, and there's so much to be thankful for, first of all, for salvation. That God revealed truth to our hearts and unveiled our faces that we may see His truth. And then He humbled our hearts. He allowed us so that we may acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. You can start thanking Him with that. And then go on into your personal life and thank God for absolutely everything else. And that's a daily thing. If we open up to Scripture, I won't cite all the Scriptures, but you open up and you read things like this. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift, giving thanks always and for everything. Giving thanks in all circumstances. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. Scripture is very clear about us that we need to give God thanksgiving. Scripture is very clear that we need to be thankful. You know, Isaiah was the prophet who said in chapter 55 that God pleases in the broken and contrite spirit before Him because a broken and contrite spirit is first of all thankful to Him for everything and is in need of Him and worships Him. But a prideful heart, what does a prideful heart do? First of all, prideful heart says, God, I could do it on my own. Parents, I could do it on my own. Everybody else, I can do it on my own. That's not a thankful heart. Nobody wants to be around people who are not thankful. But to the contrary, to the contrary, be thankful. Amen. Amen. Let us stand in prayer. Let us give thanks to God for the inexpressible gift. Hallelujah, Jesus.